Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hello and welcome to Radio Free Brooklyn live uh, live with objection to the rule. I'm your host Violet Barron here in studio with special guest Teresa Robinson. How, how you doing? I'm well. How are you? Thanks for having me. Great to great to have you on. Uh, so this week we have a full lineup for you. Um, we'll talk. Uh, we'll talk with Teresa about her work with Impact Ministry at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We will. Um, We'll hear about uh, Amazon's historic move out of, uh, of New York City, and we will um, talk about uh, we'll talk about Trump's, uh, Trump's moves with the uh, national emergency declaration and um, Democrats in Congress's uh, attempts to move away from that. So uh, it's all coming up live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, stay tuned. So, uh, welcome to the studio, Teresa. How are you? How's your week been? It's been pretty good. Really busy. Black History Month is already always so busy for me. I like to do a lot of things in community. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's great. What are some of the kinds of things that you do? Um. Well, I've been involved in a couple of artist projects this this time. I sang back up for a um, artist from Brooklyn. We did a show at the Cutting Room. It was a really great show earlier this month. And then I did a Black History program with the choir called Say It Loud, Black and Proud the other day. Um, and that was also at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So we honor local community members who are contributing to the black community. And so it's almost like a an honors um, award show, just our style. And so that was pretty fun. And then um, have a couple other projects that I'm engaging in later today and later this week. Very cool. Very cool. So, um, Teresa, uh, we've got Max in the studio. He's uh, coming in, settling in. Um, uh, but... Um, to get started, um, Teresa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background? Okay. Uh, yeah. So I've been in New York um, about 10 years, and I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, back at home, I was a spoken word poet, and I hosted a youth um, and community uh pretty much just a platform. It was an open mic at one point. At one point, it was a meeting, and it's called Liberation. So the concept is that I was given a stage to people who wanted to talk about social justice issues. Um, this was during the bush Kerry election, believe it or not, way back then. Wow. Um, but this is when I started, and um, I was a part of a group of students that went to Rutgers University to be a part of the National Hip Hop Political Convention. And this was just a youth conference, and we learned about the electoral college process, and we all created, created a gender to take back to our communities and initiatives to keep them fire going. So liberation was created. Yeah, and then I had graduated from the University of Cincinnati at that point, and I was really just trying to open, have open mics for students to just speak their minds and do things like that. So my goal was to bring it to New York and kind of broaden my perspective, not just be such a, you know, racial content, American content, Midwestern content. I really wanted to open it up to more global content and also hear the stories of other people. So here I am. I did liberation in New York maybe two or three times. 
And um, here it's a much bigger animal. It's a lot more to put on a production. So in the process, I've been trying to find other ways to myself as an artist to be engaged and also to get involved in other community projects. Hence me involved with um, Emmanuel Baptist Church and the Impact Ministry. Okay, well, we're very happy to have you here with us on Radio Free Brooklyn. And, Thank uh, you. And hearing your story there. Uh, hey, Max, just want to say hi. How's it going? Doing well, doing well. It's <laughs> great to have you both in the studio right now. Sorry, yeah. I'm a little Thank tardy. You. The bus is... We, we can we can just blame it on the L train. Put all the blame. Exactly. We had nothing to do with it. Um, but uh, yeah, and um, so you mentioned the Impact Ministry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? What what is it? What's its mission? Yeah. So Impact is a small ministry that has been started. I think maybe two or three years at Emmanuel. Um, I've just joined the ministry within the last six months. So I'm a very new member. Um, but generally speaking, it's a social justice ministry. The purpose is to bring real life projects um, to the Brooklyn community and actually teach people ways to be engaged and make you know active change. So we do a couple projects throughout the year, focusing on uh, some of our pillars. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But the goal is to give people an opportunity to really be engaged because a lot of people want to do things about some of the social issues that we all face. But they have no idea where to start. Right. So Impact is starting. It's kind of a baby ministry in comparison to all the other large ones that Emmanuel has. Um, but overall, our key issue is just pretty much as Christians to have a social justice place in society and to make movements, real actionable movements that we can account for and help us to help others. That's really the goal. Okay, very cool. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe we should uh, stay, take a step back a little bit and hear about the church itself. You say it has a lot of ministries. It's very active. So what is Emmanuel Baptist Church? It's, for me, it's just like home away from home. Um, Emmanuel is full of a lot of very progressive and educated people, as well as everyday Brooklynites that have been here throughout Brooklyn's transition. Um, the leadership is very progressive. The pastor is um, Anthony L. Trufant, and our executive pastor is Sharika Newton. Both are very um, just their their mission in ministry is to make people actually do stuff with their ministry. So it's not just about going to church and going to worship and reading the Bible. It's about being active members in the community, which is very much Christ-like and connected to the role that Jesus played in the Bible. So they push us to be engaged, to use our special gifts, to engage ourselves with one another and to encourage each other's projects so that we can actually make actionable change. That's great. And I know um, the church is in, uh, it's based in Clinton Hill. Yep. And it's, uh, you were mentioning to me just before the show, it's a very old congregation, although uh, the leadership has transitioned in the last century. Um, yeah, I think it, we just celebrated like 137 years wow. last year. So the church has been a community pillar for quite some time. Um, I believe uh, Pastor Trufant has been there since the 80s. So over his time, a lot of new things have been introduced. Women in the pulpit, we didn't have that. The women leadership is um, really huge at Emmanuel. And then each one of we have a lot of life cycle ministries. So there's something from the youth, which is YLE, the youth leaders of Emmanuel, all the way up to prime timers, which is our um, older adult ministry. That's a good name for them. Yeah, prime timers. <laughs> yeah. There's a 2030s ministry. There is a frontliners, which is the men's ministry and the chosen, which is the women. So there's all these different levels, um, which is great because it kind of breaks that um, myth that we don't have any intergenerational connection. Okay. Yeah. And the church really focuses on building that and maintaining that up under the congregation. So it's really great. That is great. And it's interesting to me because, you know, Clinton Hill itself is sort of a center for Brooklyn's change. It's seen a lot. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, I spent time in a cafe in Clinton Hill. I got to know uh, one of an old-timer there who was telling me about how the neighborhood changed. Mm-hmm. One of the things he said was, you know, Clinton Hill, what is Clinton Hill? When I moved <laughs> here, this was Bed-Stuy. You know? Yeah. So um, was that is that something that uh, congregants have seen, and is that something that Impact, uh, Impact or Emmanuel is sort of reacting to? Absolutely. Well? There's a lot of jokes sometimes about old Brooklyn and new Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's all with love. But the reality is this was not the best neighborhood um, just 20, 30 years ago. It was kind of not safe in certain parts for it to now be this really mixed neighborhood with all of this life um, youth and all these new businesses um, is really taking a, a total change but what I love about it is it's still a very mixed neighborhood all different types of people and walks of life are represented and it also is um, I this that was the first neighborhood I moved to when I moved from Cincinnati so it was very easy for me to adjust yeah. Um, to New York being in a neighborhood that was just really open and open-minded. So over the years, I've seen a lot of businesses come and go. Sure. Um, I was used to be a really big fan of Madiba's. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it was a yeah, no, South African restaurant. Now? It is oh, gone. Yes, I think so it closed last summer. Wow. So um, I was actually there the night Obama got the nomination. Um, it was like a, oh, yeah, yeah, was it was awesome. There, right? Yeah, it was yeah. really, really a, yeah. a great place. So Clint Hill just kind of has this really rich history, uh, which is a great place for Emmanuel to be. Because over time, we support local neighborhood businesses and um, we just we do a lot of partnerships and things like that. And the congregation really has their foot there. A lot of them are homeowners and been there for their whole lives, been raised up in this neighborhood. So it's really good to be a part of a community like that. Very cool. Um, And moving back to the impact ministry side of things, um, you mentioned you're a newer member of it. Um, So what are some of the projects that you've been involved in or that you're working with now? Okay, well, our most recent project we did over the Christmas holiday, we did a bailout campaign. We partnered with the Brooklyn Bail Bond um, Organization, and it was a $5 bailout. So it challenged all of our members to donate at least $5 um, to go towards individuals who may get caught up in the system and be sitting there waiting for trial. A lot of people get arrested, and then in the time it takes them to actually get representation or see a judge, there could be a week, two weeks, three weeks, and then once they get enough money, money to get out on bail they've lost their job they've jeopardized the situations that they're in some people are stuck in that system for like 30 bucks but if you don't have it or $200 and your rent is due we all know the rent is too high in New York Mm -hmm. so if you get arrested on the 27th and your rent's due on the first well you probably don't have that money all that time you're sitting there you can lose your job and your children could be at jeopardy if they don't have anybody to pick them up from school so it really affects people who are not necessarily guilty they're just caught up in the system so our focus was to build money for this campaign and the church matched the funding that we actually raised so each um, Saturday and Sunday because we have services on both days in December we just had a table and asked uh, members to donate $5 or whatever they'd like to we actually end up raising about $10,000 over the course of just three weeks which was really awesome and the best part about it is if the person shows up for bail that money goes back to the Brooklyn bail bond and gets recycled for another person to use that money so that five dollars could be used who knows how long um and it was just a really great campaign um overall we have now i've never done anything like that but at the current time i had a nephew who was kind of facing some of those issues in cincinnati and um it personally affected me because he was stuck there because my family didn't have enough money to get him out at that time and he is a person with mental illness so some of the things that he was involved in weren't necessarily under his control 
um, it really hurt because I couldn't do something personally to help them. But in the same context, he's now home and things like that have gotten better. But I understand how this could really hurt somebody because it happened to me. Right, you know, right. um, you so, that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was it, it's, it takes that sometimes for people to see these problems actually to become real when it touches you. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't want to worry about the children over there or this is not my concern. But then the minute you feel it and it's somebody that, you know, or something like that, you become almost condemned. Like, what can I do? Um, so while I couldn't necessarily help my family the way I wanted to, I helped a bunch of others. And the goal was to bring these people home for New Year's so that they wouldn't spend New Year's locked up without being charged for anything so it was a really great campaign we did it is and it sounds like it goes right back into the community right the five dollars goes into the bail bonds yep. and then it can be reused mm-hmm. so. so we partnered with them um last year to do something like this but i don't think i think we caught it a little bit late for the christmas season so this time we got an early start and it was just wonderful people were just pouring money out their pockets to do something like this. And they felt that it was really connecting to people because a lot of people are affected by this system and they have no idea how it works. That's the main, the main issue of impact is like breaking these things down and giving people some real insight. Who are these people and how do these processes work? Um, I think a lot of time the red tape for people to be engaged is because they simply don't understand the words. The wording is set up to a point where people, if, if, if you don't read it and just pick it up and understand it, then you'll just walk away because you just don't have enough time right. to really, you know, debunk all this stuff and break it down. So that's one of Impact's um, major efforts is just to educate people mm-hmm. a lot about the different systems that we are all engaged in and also how to manipulate them and work them so they can help us and help each other. Very cool. And uh, how about uh, in the next year or so moving to the future? Um, do you are there projects that you're very excited about that you'll be involved in coming up for impact? Yeah. So our next project is an African-American literacy festival. Um, this is going to happen the first week of April. And it will be last year. We did a, a small snippet of it at our Brooklyn block party that we did in the summer where we just had uh, people donate books by African-American RM writers and it was for the youth and then during the summer the youth would sit there and read the book so we would read to them and they would be able to take a book home and they would have representation on their bookshelves of someone who looked like their uh, stories that you know came from our community so we're trying to make it larger this time where we actually bring in authors to the church to maybe get some of their books out for free also talk a little bit about the content and then raise it up to so that the parents are also more mindful of what they're feeding their children you know a lot of people don't read unless they have to you know so if you're being forced to read something for school it necessarily won't hit home but if you're being introduced to some um, article or different writer that looks like you or tells a story about something you may be interested in you will engage and we just see a deficit a deficit of people just really reading especially with the youth being engaged in that way so our goal is really to uplift our own church community but it's also open to everyone who wants to be a part of it but we're like trying to get contributions from bookstores and um artists are authors to come and write um, not necessarily write their books but to hold workshops for the children and to just give them some insight of what it means to actually be a published author very cool and Brooklyn's such a great place for that it's such yeah. a literary borough there's so many authors here authors of color yeah right there in in Fort Greene there's so many people I've bought books on the train you know there's this one guy who's selling his book like every time in the summertime he's probably tried to sell me his book like four times I'm like guy I'm almost finished reading your novel but um you know just supporting local artists is a really big thing so we're just trying to bring it and make it not necessarily a social justice issue but um an upliftment issue which is a part of social justice yeah 
Certainly. Uh, I want to open up the floor to our uh, uh, Max, uh, see if you have anything to ask or to um, add. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this whole history of, uh, you know, social justice oriented ministry has a really rich, um, you know, past mm-hmm. in the in the recent few decades. I'm thinking especially in regards to the um, immigrant justice movements, ministers, churches have mm-hmm. been sanctuaries and uh, incredible organizers in those movements uh, as far as um, not just providing uh, protection, but also it raising awareness, mm-hmm. increasing uh, understanding of the issues. I'm wondering where uh, this specific uh, ministry got its start. What was the impetus for the, uh, the um, Emanuel Church to um, start a ministry like this? Well, I honestly, um, I'm not sure because the, the history is way beyond me being there. I've been a member of Emanuel for eight years myself um, and been involved in many of the different life cycle ministries. So this is the first time for this. But I can see the membership of Emmanuel is a very educated bunch. Mm. Um, lots of people who have um, been educators and just involved in the different industries of society that really run things. So that premise of that strong congregation there's just a lot of forward thinking there and I feel like over the years there's been different initiatives that have happened that the church has been a part of that are not necessarily just Emmanuel Baptist Church initiatives Um, I've been a part of a couple of different ones we have a ministry with South Africa where we are partnered with a church um, in Pretoria and a portion of our um, tithes and offerings each week go to support this ministry over there. What it is is a um, it's a school that services children from you know grade school all the way up to high school. And this is one a community. It's almost like a community center, but it's an actual school. So we went there, um, maybe fifty members ourselves, and they are members of their community. And for a week, we rebuilt the school pretty much. We painted the grounds, we bought books, we made libraries, we made posters, we gave them as much as we could. But we also did it together. It was an engagement process. So it's a little different than a traditional mission trip. Uh, This was a trip of, you know, just connection and just people sharing what they have and what they can do. We had um, it was broken down into teams and the teams were based on whatever you do for a chosen profession. So if you're a teacher, you helped in the classroom. If you are, uh, we had a doctor go with us, a couple of doctors, they gave the children quick checkups and things of that nature. So it's just Emmanuel's always been about serving the community, but also from a global community as well. And I think that that is where the premise of it lies. Our congregation is large. It's one of the largest uh, churches in downtown Brooklyn. But there's so many layers of people from all over the world. And our mission is not just to be within our church. Our mission is to be impactful in the global community. And I think that's just where it's going to go forever. That's great. That's great. And um, uh, any uh, anything you, you want to tell us more about the ministry and, uh, and what are the best ways to follow uh, the ministry and the church? Okay. Well, we have a website. It's uh, www.ebcconnects.org. And we do stream all of our services. We have services on Saturday at 5 o'clock. It's called The Alternative. So that one's a little less um, traditional, if you will. It's one an, hour, an hour and 15 minutes. So kind of for the person that's on the go or you don't really have that traditional life, you can always still get it in. You don't even have to be in the church to have the church. You know what I mean? Um, you can. And follow the various uh, programs that we have. Some of our ministers do radio shows. We have deacons that work for Spotify, all kind of things. We're just like integrated. But the best thing is just to come and check it out. Come and see what it's all about at Emmanuel. And our doors are open to everyone. Uh, We're very much come as you are, church. So you don't have to be 
completely dressed to come and check out what we're doing. And all we really want you to do is come and enjoy yourself, be a part of community and possibly get inspired by some of the things that we're doing. So I would say just stop by 279 Lafayette Street whenever you get a chance. Um, Check out our website or just look and see, you know, the members of the community in Brooklyn. I bet you somebody's connected to Emmanuel wherever you go. Yeah. So it's ebcconnects.org. Yes. Great. So thank you so much, Teresa. Thank you. Uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we, when we get back, we'll hear the story on Amazon's retreat from New York and end to discrimination in New York City based on hair. It's all coming up on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned. نعرف اني جيت هنا من غير سبول تملى العقول تملى البيوت تملى الروايح انا اعرف اني جيت هنا من غير سبول تملى الحياه تملى الصحاب تملى القرايح انا اعرف اني جيت هنا من غير سبول تملى العقول تملى البيوت أنا أعرف إني جيت هنا من غير سبول تملى الحياة تملى الصحاب تملى القرايب السجن ممكن يبقى مخدراتي السجن ممكن يبقى علاقة من علاقاتك ملجماك موقفاك معلقاك بس إحنا لسه بنكابر السجن ممكن يبقى فكرة حبتيها وقوتيها وتعلقتي فيها بين شكوك وبين حقيقة السجن مش بس الكبير السجن جايز يبقى فيك بس الأكيد إن انت حر
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule from Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, that was uh, Dina El Wadidi um, singing a, a beautiful tune. Um, so uh, now we will get right into it with local news, and uh, Max has the story. Right, so, I mean, the big news on everyone's lips these days is that uh, Amazon was successfully courted by Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio, although he may conveniently deny it at this point, through the end of 2010, but the company got cold feet when faced with a hostile state legislature and mounting community demands. The massive second campus of the wealthiest company in the world, cited for Long Island City, fell through along with the promised 25,000 jobs and a projected $27 billion in revenue last week. And the question I think that everybody's juggling uh, is whether or not this is good news for uh, New Yorkers. Um, I mean, you know, generally, uh, we've heard a lot of back and forth on whether or not the projected revenue uh, would have outweighed the sort of tax breaks and, um, you know, inevitable... um, you know, uh, uh, snafus that uh, would face such a large um, incursion of people and, um, you know, building projects, things like that. Um, so the first question, I guess, would be what, what, what could we have expected from Amazon's arrival and what are the biggest losses um, or, or gains um, from their uh, pulling out of the deal? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's hard to it's hard to exactly say, you know, a lot of the opposition was saying we may with Amazon. Okay, so Amazon was saying, right, um, we're going to bring in 50,000 jobs into New York City. We're going to uh, take Long Island City, which, you know, it's not as much of a center of commerce as Brooklyn and Manhattan have become, but uh, we're going to turn it into the, a place that really has industry, that has jobs and um but the op- the opposition was saying right that uh, these jobs are not going to be for the people who are already in New York City. You know, we have pretty high unemployment in New York City, uh, even though it's such a center of industry. But the jobs are going to be brought in. These are going to be outside uh, people who are moving in and making everything less affordable for New Yorkers. And it's hard to argue with that, understanding what Amazon is as a, as a corporation. I've also read some interviews that were stating that the reason that they wanted to come to New York was because there is a large number of uh, tech um, people in the tech industry. So they had some of the best talent here that they were looking for Um to run this this corporation so it could be a good thing i think if if that would provide the jobs for those people but i do agree that's not the massive amount of people that need this sort of work so maybe it would have provided some customer service jobs but um in regards to space and how it would affect um the everyday new yorkers commute i think that probably would have killed it for all of us it's the transportation here is awful already and um putting it in long island city is a good idea but it probably would change the scope of Long Island City for what it really is. It's one of those one places where you can actually get away from the city and feel the energy of the city without all of the other parts of it that make it awful. Right. You know, yeah. um, I once worked there and it was just kind of chill, even though it was industrial. But now if I go there, it's almost like a delight I'm going to have dinner by the water or take a walk to be polluted with a whole bunch of workers and, you know, um, whatever else the factory would bring with it, the pollution, whatever else, less parking probably wouldn't have been best for everyday New Yorkers. I wanted to ask if you'd heard any feedback from uh, folks in the church, um, from your congregation. Uh, how had people reacted to the deal? 
have you heard a lot of conversation going on? Um, not so much. I mean, my church is always open to making more opportunities um, for people. So in the in the result that we may lose a lot of possible jobs, I think we may feel that there. But in the same context, um, what are the other losses that we're going to have for another huge giant to come and take over New York? You know, this is the the land of the small businessman, you know, and now we're taking up all this space and all this um, other things that that part of the industry will be affected by it. I don't know if it would be the best for small business owners, which is a lot of my congregation. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it, uh, you know, presents a challenge for our politicians to kind of figure out how to navigate uh, the coming years um, as, you know, we, you know, the mayor and Congress folks and the governor all kind of uh, try to scramble to figure out what happened um, and how do we pick up the pieces and what it signals for the future. I mean, do you think that this is uh, on the heels of a huge shift in the political climate where uh, really progressive uh, folks are coming out of New York City and pushing um, for more accountability from companies like Amazon? Do we see a shift coming uh in power from corporate um, ability to kind of do whatever they want towards people's ability to say, no, we need certain, um, you know, safeguards. Mm -hmm. Um, What do y'all see as far as the shifts in the political landscape that this is either um, causing or being caused by? Yeah, well, it was certainly surprising to me. It was kind of a shock when we found out Amazon was pulling out, you know, because even with the opposition, it's... uh, it's just, um, Amazon is so huge, you know? We see it as this almost unstoppable power, and it had the backing of our uh, leadership in the city and the state. You know, Cuomo was hugely behind it. De Blasio was behind it. So when it pulled out, it made me think, like, you know, what is Amazon afraid of? What's really stopping Amazon here? So. If the shift's going to happen, it's going to happen here. Um, I think the power in numbers does exist here. Um you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I can really say to date of a movement that New York people have started and continued and sustained. But I do believe if it is going to happen where the people's voice is louder than anyone else's, it would be it would start here first. So maybe we are seeing that shift coming. Um, obviously, in this climate, it is welcomed. OK, uh, everybody's opinions are welcomed at this point. So um, people are actually putting some action behind it. But I feel like there's a piece missing. We don't really know what happened, yeah. do we? As far as I'm concerned, I think that the biggest um, reason that Amazon backed out was the fact that people were were dissenting and okay. saying, hey, you know, we need more, uh, you know, accountability from the company. We need um, more transparency in the project. They had signed non-disclosure agreements mm-hmm. about how they would go about Im- implementing the project, which the mayor says is a very uh, classic, um, you know, piece of this kind of deal, um, but which really stirred the pot um, when people were concerned about not just what the job uh, makeup would look like, how it would affect the local economy, but also who gets to stay. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about Long Island City being kind of this escape. And part of the reason that it is that is because it hasn't had this development Mm -hmm. yet. And so people in the neighborhood were really worried about how it would affect their living situations. Mm -hmm. If the rents would increase because more folks who are vying for these jobs, which are inevitably going to be a little bit higher paying, um, would push out the local neighborhood residents. So there were a lot of different pieces that led the state legislature, from what I've heard, 
to meet Amazon officials with a lot of ire. And yeah, and and a lot of terms um, that Amazon was just scared off by, I think. Um, So, I mean, in the end, I think it it was a surprise to everyone. Even the mayor, I heard his segment when he went on um, uh, Brian Lehrer's show, just responding to people with this kind of the other side of the coin where he's kind of retracting his uh, support, um, trying to put the blame on Amazon at every turn, which is understandable. But I I think it does represent this shift where uh, people, as you're saying, in New York are recognizing their own ability to speak up and, um, you know, affect change. Yeah, it's definitely happened in all the boroughs. So, right. right, 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 (laughs) It's on the rise over there in Long Island City. Yeah. So we had another big piece of news this week in New York. Yeah, which, uh, you know, relates to the state legislature being sort of a fiery body, apparently. Um, City officials uh, provided new guidance to clarify that existing New York City human rights law protects citizens' rights to wear their hair, quote, in a manner associated with their racial, ethnic, or cultural identities, end quote. The policy protects all people in public accommodations, including restaurants, clubs, parks, libraries, etc., and with most employers, schools, housing providers, etc. There are seven open cases citing hair-based discrimination in the city currently, and the conversation broke national headlines when a black New Jersey high schooler was forced to cut his dreadlocks by a referee or forfeit the match in December. I think this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time. We can all agree about that. Um, what is the uh, impetus for this clarification right now? I mean, other than the fact that it is breaking national headlines, uh, why are we seeing this clarification happen right at this moment? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, I think it's a, a move of the moment, and now we have the legislature to back it up, you know, in the in the extremely local level, even on city council, you know, in, uh, in borough districts, but also in the state level. Um, so it's the combination. Do you guys think that there's something else behind it as well? Well, I think the increase with um, the hate crimes and just the air and with that this administration has provoked, um, quite honestly, is causing these conversations to happen more so. But I really think there's it's really sad that children are faced to acknowledge their human rights um, at such a young age because what is a human right really and what is the purpose the purpose of human rights is to oppose governments from basically stepping on people controlling them and controlling their lives if this child has been growing his hair for however long and he's forced to cut it to participate in the sport that's supposed to teach him leadership what are we really saying what's really out there about that that you can't be yourself and be a leader or that who you are is wrong I think the deeper question is, is this a human right or is this just hate? Because if it is human rights and and we should be able to practice whatever we feel comfortable with, because that's all we know, then this shouldn't even be a question. Right. I mean, when you think about it beyond the headline, it's hair, right? Exactly. It doesn't impede your ability to work a job. It's just a matter of self-expression, you know, identity expression. And it's shocking that in a place like New York, where we have so many different people, that this is even still a problem. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, you know, what are the ramifications of this uh, clarification of the law? Um, how is, how, what, what kind of uh, changes do we see in professionalism on a larger scale uh, as far as what is uh, becoming normalized and acceptable 
do, do you think that this is going to be an effective guidance clarification that will change the um, ability of folks to embody themselves in, in every aspect of their lives um, and not face discrimination for it? Well, I certainly hope that it, it at least brings it to a full gamut for people to see what it is clearly. You know, it's nice to have it described the way it was, but at the end of the day, you know, discrimination is what it is. Professionalism has nothing to do with the way that you look. You know, you can come and look like you just stepped off the street and give the most, you know, educated interview of your life. So I think there is certain levels of professionalism that can be defined, but not by our hair or our position on how we feel or what we follow or what we believe. I think that's taking it too far. And I think this conversation is is timely. Um, because of what we're talking about, but what happens after and how it's dealt with will really tell us where we stand. A lot of this is um, just the, the wool being taken over everybody's eyes of the realities that we live in that have maybe been not necessarily so focused on in the past 20 years. But if for it to happen in 2020, um, it really says a lot about where we are. Sure. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that, um, you know, to your question, Max, that. Uh, like, I don't think that this clarification in the guidance is really going to affect the full change that people want to see in this. I think that it's going to continue to be challenged. I think it's going to be challenged in explicit ways, you know, and also in implicit ways. I don't, I'm not, I'm not convinced that this new uh, legal change is going to mean that people who have uh, different hairstyles and different hair mm-hmm. are going to uh, have the, like, a suddenly easier time. It's going to take right. some time. Yeah. yeah, we're still in that process. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, you had you had one other question, Max. Yeah, which was is kind of tongue in cheek, but uh, you know, reflecting a little bit on the way that um, weed legislation actually has been going, I was thinking about the ways in which this kind of clarification can be used um, to. Ex- expedite processes of appropriation and exploitation. Uh, you know, as we see weed legalized in different states, uh, we see a shift in who is doing the business, and we don't see uh, an effort to, you know, a- enact reparations to a certain extent to the communities that have been, that have borne the brunt of the, um, you know, uh, criminal justice that is, that existed formerly. Um, in a similar sense, I wonder how this is going to come into play with the um, the change in or the the clarification around uh, these guidelines as in so far as white people with dreads and in the conversation of cultural appropriation um, what kind of avenues will or conversations will this expand um, in the coming year I mean if any you know Cultural appropriation, to some extent, could be in the eye of the beholder. 
I mean, the obvious is the obvious. But if I was a a white person and I decided to have dreads in my hair, um, I obviously went through a process. If it was me, I probably would have went through a process of why I made that decision. Um, But some things, you know, people with dreadlocks or they grow that way, they're surfing. They don't make decisions about that. You know, that's just their culture. So there's so many layers to this that we're going to have to talk about. It's definitely going to challenge what that means. And I can't really see somebody asking me at a job. Well, why do you have braids in your hair? Is that because you are black? Is that because you are white? Like is I think that question alone is going to stir up a lot. So we may have a lot further to go with this concept. Um, But if you know the choices that we all make, I think, you know, I would like to think, give people the benefit of doubt and say that they make the choices based on what is best for them. Now, is that the best for the industry? It may or may not be, you know, Um, but to judge someone and say that they can't do something because of that, I think is probably the thing we need to focus on the most. Well, it'll be definitely interesting to hear how uh, those clarifications actually um, come out in the wash as far as who is protected where yeah. and how and um, if these clarifications actually lead to any changes. And what is the process right. of implementing a clarification? What does that even look like? You exactly. Know? Yeah. 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 yeah, we, we will. We certainly will have to see. So we're going to take another short break. Uh, we'll hear another song by Dina Wadidi. And then we'll uh, get right into it with um, Democrats challenging the uh, national emergency and uh, what's new on the Mueller front. Uh, Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live from Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Dina Alwadidi with Hosen al And uh, we're going to get into it with um, national news. But first, did you know that you can listen to this on your phone? You do not need to be listening on a computer. You can listen anytime, anywhere with the Radio Free Brooklyn app. You can get it on uh, their Android store or the Apple store, uh, wherever you listen. And uh, so this week, House Democrats raised a resolution that would challenge President Trump's declaration of a national emergency in order to secure funding for a border wall. The resolution is likely to pass in the House, but it may not get through the Republican-led Senate. And even if it does get a simple majority there, Trump can veto it, and he has pledged to do so. Uh, Congress would then need a two-thirds majority to pass the resolution, which, honestly, it's like, it's looking a little bit uh, dicey with that two-thirds. So um, I'm wondering, uh, how likely do you all think it is that we see traction on this resolution? Is this sort of a symbolic thing, you know, by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leaders, or is it something that maybe has teeth? I hope it has teeth. <laughs> We've got to have hope, right? Um, I hope it has teeth. I, I'm not quite sure. I don't trust the um, this administration to play by the rules <laughs> on objection to the rule Clearly. of need that. Right. <laughs> not at all. Um, and time is winding up, which is probably why we're seeing so much um, happening at this point. So I would certainly hope something would change, but... I'm a little nervous that this is actually going to happen or at least it's going to be started. Maybe it may not be finished. Um, But, you know, sad to say he may be more powerful when he's not president. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think I'm with you on the reticence to, um, you know, get behind this push um, and get my hopes up too much about the (laughs) success. I don't I don't think that it will uh, be able to beat a veto if if it does get to that level, which which it very well, it very well might. I mean, they only need to flip like four Republican senators for it to pass in the Senate. And there have already been senators on the Republican side who have been vocally uh, in opposition to the um, national emergency. But uh, I don't think that they're going to go so far as to um, be able to to veto and get the two-thirds majority. I do think, however, that there are, you know, it's it's sort of necessary for the Democrats to put forth any and every effort uh, in this moment um, to at least show that they're trying. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that uh, they might have more luck in the courts uh, where there are many legal challenges being brought um, in opposition to the funding um the efforts of the administration to funnel funding from other sources um, into the into into building the wall. So that's somewhere that I see uh, some possible success coming in the movement. Uh, and I think if nothing else, this push by Democratic uh, lawmakers will fuel the fire in those fights uh, and raise awareness about the various legal struggles that are being um, positioned. So, you know, there's there's there is hope. I mm-hmm. think got to uh, have you, hope. you have to have hope. <laughs> And uh, and and so we'll see what happens in the coming weeks. The lawmakers vote on Tuesday, so we'll we'll have That's a right. first. We'll know taste. very soon what's going to happen in the first shot. Um, and are there other ways that Congress can challenge Trump's border wall funding beyond this resolution? Maybe uh, you know we we see and this is not congressional, but we see I think sixteen states so far have sued 
the government for the uh, border wall. Are there other ways that people can sort of tie it up, can keep it from coming, do we think? Well, I think what you said about the courts and, um, you know, there being more traction to get the funding stopped on that and maybe what we have to really depend on. Um, has anybody ever successfully sued the government in one? Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, <laughs> no, really. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't expect you guys to know the answer, but that's the first thing that came to my mind with these lawsuits. Like, what what is the result of this? It's nice to, I feel like it's almost just bringing awareness, but what happens at the end of it? Mm-hmm. Do we see outcomes? Is who's, who's on the stand? Like, how far does this really go? Well, I think it'll be really interesting uh, first test, in a sense, for our changing Supreme Court. Um, I, I think that we we got that first test really with the, the Muslim ban mm-hmm. and then with the, the abortion um, fight that was happening in Virginia, I believe That's it right. was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those went in so, somewhat surprising directions, the Muslim ban being upheld and the Virginia abortion ban being struck down. So, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see if... Uh, these kinds of cases which rise through all the various different levels of the courts um, will end up in the Supreme Court and how uh, Kavanaugh, for example, will uh, decide on these cases. I mean, I'm definitely interested to see uh, how that will shake out and and hope that he will do something right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, 16 states is significant, I think. Um, And I think it's something to be said that there is almost like a unity forming within them. So maybe we are seeing something um, coming together in this in this treachery, we may be seeing something actually a rise actually coming towards that may not be as political, but more uh, utilizing the courts and the judiciary system as our real process, which is what it was designed for, I believe. That's right. That's right. So uh, moving on to the Mueller front this week, uh, the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office is actually developing a state case against Paul Manafort related to fraud of state tax fraud and banking fraud charges. If this case goes through, Manafort would still face charges even if Trump pardoned him on the federal level. Uh, Meanwhile, the New York Times revealed that Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, met with federal prosecutors in Manhattan last month and revealed possible irregularities, quote, (laughs) in the Trump family organization which may indicate the prosecution's interest in the Trump organization for further investigation. So uh, we sort of got two parts here that, uh, you know, on the surface they're not so connected, but they all really go back to the investigation and they go back to the man who's currently holding federal office. So um, I wonder first what might be the motivation behind prosecuting Manafort on a state level and uh, what does this indicate about, you know, if the prosecution is sort of thinking two or three steps ahead, why would they make it so certain that he would still be up for prosecution on the state level? Maybe their last ditch effort. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I think that they can kind of, uh, you know, read the, the cards, as it were, and see that Trump has uh, has it in his best self-interest to... Um, you know, hand out a pardon if it means protecting himself and sort of uh, baiting people to not share everything they know or, you know, just not go all out, um, you know. Not yet anyway. Right, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I was reading that the the state cases that could be brought might land Manafort in jail for the rest of his life. He's turning 70 soon and the cases could, uh, you know, 
garner him a 30-year sentence or, or more. Um, so this this is an interesting moment where uh, um, I think the, the lawyers of the state are going to have to decide um, if this is a chip they want to play, if, if they want to um, put it out there that people aren't going to walk scot-free if if they, you know, commit these ma- massive crimes. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's, it's a message to the president, if nothing else, that, you know, whatever you do and whatever you decide, justice will be served um, one way or another. Yeah. I'm grateful that the state is stepping up in this way, that the prosecution took that route, because it kind of feels like there's nothing that can be done. I'm starting to feel that this whole thing is just right. like a dream and then it's going to be over, hopefully, um, or not. And continue. But this this whole concept that nothing is really being done, it's almost like an ongoing chase that's never going to end. And I I can't help but to say I just feel like he's going to be way more powerful when he's not in office. Yeah, you said that uh, in our last segment. I'm so curious. Do you do you have a sense of how that will play out? Well, I mean, let's face it. We didn't really I I personally didn't know how powerful he was before, you know, Um, and I don't even think he did either. I feel like he woke up one day like, oh, man, I got to do this. Um, But and and I have to do it. And here it goes. But now the manipulation that has happened up under this administration is almost like where are the checks and balances of our government? What happened to it? Um, So at this point, where did it go? It used to be in existence. People used to be made examples of there used to be really strict restrictions on certain things. And it's almost like those things don't exist during this time. So the minute he's not held to this, um, he has to be so present. The minute that he has his freedom back, like it was ever taken. But you get what I'm saying. The minute he's not up under this microscope, I feel like that's more of us, more for us to worry about, quite honestly, because he has his hands in all the boxes now. Right. And and I think that was the mission, because it's not like you can just be the lead. You know, the president has certain powers, but not all of them. But it almost like he's been playing his chessboard, you know. So the minute he's not the guy, not that guy, I'm a little nervous what's going to happen. I just I just really am. So. Right. And then on the other hand, we've got uh, news about an investigation into the Trump organization, a further investigation. You know, we knew that there were certain things going on with the Trump organization. The Trump Foundation was dissolved because of uh, things that were revealed, partly by Michael Cohen's revelations. Now he's back, or last month we found out this week he came back. What does this mean? You know, like, uh, he's theoretically, he's given a lot to the uh, to the investigation. So what would be a reasoning behind him coming back and giving more information? You know, that's, that is a great question. <laughs> yes. I, I am also at a loss for that. I think, I, I mean, I think it's generally, um, you know, acknowledged that he has been very cooperative. I mean, mm-hmm. even Mueller himself was saying that he has cooperated at every step of the way and has never uh, withheld anything as far as they can tell. Uh, so it, it it doesn't make sense to me, uh, uh, you know, why he would be returning unless he did have some last scoop that could really provide some dirt. I mean, to me, it almost is bad news because it feels like, okay, maybe the Mueller investigation doesn't have what they need yet. And so it's kind of them digging for, you know, something else that they might be able to use. So I think that it, it might blow up in their face. I mean, you know, with with the media working as it does mm-hmm. um, to kind of turn every leaf, right. as it were. 
I, I, I'm just unsure as to what the effect will be of his return. Do you, do you feel that there may be something that he's prolonging? Like, you know, I hate to be conspiracy theorists. Yeah. We may have to answer that question next week because we are about out of time for this week's uh, Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for more of our shows. Uh, and stay tuned for uh, more independent Brooklyn media coming up. Thanks for listening.